Section 168 of Chesterfield's Letters to His Son. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter 200. London, March 26, 1754. My dear friend, Yesterday I received your letter of the 15th from Mannheim, where I find you have been received in the usual gracious manner, which I hope you return in a graceful one. As this is a season of great devotion and solemnity in all Catholic countries, pray inform yourself of, and constantly attend to, all their silly and pompous church ceremonies. One ought to know them. I am very glad that you wrote the letter to Lord, which, in every different case that can possibly be supposed, was, I am sure, both a decent and a prudent step. You will find it very difficult, whenever we meet, to convince me that you could have any good reasons for not doing it, for I will, for argument's sake, suppose what I cannot in reality believe, that he has both said and done the worst he could, of and by you. What then? How will you help yourself? Are you in a situation to hurt him? Certainly not, but he certainly is in a situation to hurt you. Would you show a sullen, pouting, impotent resentment? I hope not. Leave that silly, unavailing sort of resentment to women, and men like them, who are always guided by humor, never by reason and prudence. That pettish, pouting conduct is a great deal too young, and implies too little knowledge of the world, for one who has seen so much of it as you have. Let this be one invariable rule of your conduct, never to show the least symptom of resentment which you cannot to a certain degree gratify, but always to smile, where you cannot strike. There would be no living in courts, nor indeed in the world, if one could not conceal, and even dissemble, the just causes of resentment, which one meets with every day in active and busy life. Whoever cannot master his humor enough, pour faire bon mine à mauvais jeu, should leave the world, and retire to some hermitage in an unfrequented desert. By showing an unavailing and sullen resentment, you authorize the resentment of those who can hurt you, and whom you cannot hurt, and give them that very pretense, which perhaps they wished for, of breaking with and injuring you, whereas the contrary behavior would lay them under the restraints of decency at least, and either shackle or expose their malice. Besides, captiousness, sullenness, and pouting are most exceedingly illiberal and vulgar. Un honnête homme ne les connoît point. I am extremely glad to hear you are soon to have Voltaire at Mannheim. Immediately upon his arrival, pray make him a thousand compliments from me. I admire him most exceedingly, and whether as an epic, dramatic, or lyric poet, or prose writer, I think I justly apply to him Neo Molitur Inepte. I long to read his own correct edition of Les Annales de l'Empire, of which the abrège chronologique de l'histoire universelle, which I have read, is, I suppose, a stolen and imperfect part. However, imperfect as it is, it has explained to me that chaos of history, of seven hundred years, more clearly than any other book had done before. You judge very rightly that I love le style et le furie. I do, and so does everybody who has any parts and taste. It should, I confess, be more or less fleuri, according to the subject, but at the same time I assert that there is no subject that might not properly, and which ought not to be adorned, by a certain elegance and beauty of style. What can be more adorned than Cicero's philosophical works? What more than Plato's? It is their eloquence only that has preserved and transmitted them down to us through so many centuries, for the philosophy of them is wretched, and the reasoning part miserable. 
but eloquence will always please, and has always pleased. Study it, therefore, make it the object of your thoughts and attention. Use yourself to relate elegantly. That is a good step toward speaking well in Parliament. Take some political subject, turn it in your thoughts, consider what may be said both for and against it, then put those arguments into writing, in the most correct and elegant English you can. For instance, a standing army, a place-bill, etc. As to the former, consider on one side the dangers arising to a free country from a great standing military force. On the other, consider the necessity of a force to repel force with. Examine whether a standing army, though in itself an evil, may not, from circumstances, become a necessary evil, and preventive of greater dangers. As to the latter, consider how far places may bias and warp the conduct of men, from the service of their country, into an unwarrantable complacence to the court, and, on the other hand, consider whether they can be supposed to have that effect upon the conduct of people of probity and property, who are more solidly interested in the permanent good of their country than they can be in an uncertain and precarious employment. Seek for and answer in your own mind all the arguments that can be argued on either side, and write them down in an elegant style. This will prepare you for debating, and give you an habitual eloquence, for I would not give a farthing for a mere holiday eloquence, displayed once or twice in a session, in a set declamation, but I want an everyday, ready, and habitual eloquence, to adorn extempore and debating speeches, to make business not only clear but agreeable, and to please even those whom you cannot inform, and who do not desire to be informed. All this you may acquire and make habitual to you, with as little trouble as it costs you to dance a minuet as well as you do. You now dance it mechanically and well without thinking of it. I am surprised that you found but one letter for me at Mannheim, for you ought to have found four or five. There are as many lying for you at your bankers at Berlin, which I wish you had, because I always endeavor to put something into them, which I hope may be of use to you. When we meet at Spa, next July, we must have a great many serious conversations, in which I will pour out all my experience of the world, and which, I hope, you will trust to, more than to your own young notions of men and things. You will in time discover most of them to have been erroneous, and if you follow them long, you will perceive your error too late. But if you will be led by a guide, who, you are sure, does not mean to mislead you, you will unite two things, seldom united, in the same person the vivacity and spirit of youth, with the caution and experience of age. Last Saturday, Sir Thomas Robinson, who had been the King's Minister at Vienna, was declared Secretary of State for the Southern Department, Lord Holderness having taken the Northern. Sir Thomas accepted it unwillingly, and, as I hear, with a promise that he shall not keep it long. Both his health and spirits are bad, two very disqualifying circumstances for that employment. Yours, I hope, will enable you, some time or other, to go through with it. In all events, aim at it, and if you fail or fall, let it at least be said of you, Magnus Tamen Exidit Osis. Adieu. End of section 168. Read by Professor Heather and By. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.